Song of Solomon chapter 6 beginning in verse 4. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. I like to remind us every once in a while that the way we're looking at these messages from Song of Solomon, we're looking at how the shepherd loves his Shulamite bride. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You notice the title of the message is The Beauty of a Loving Bride. And we're going to hear the shepherd talk about his Shulamite bride. We've heard what she had to say about him. We've seen a lot of instances here in this Song of Solomon where they've been apart from one another. And now the shepherd is going to talk about his bride. And then we're going to take that. We're going to talk about husbands and wives and how we ought to get along with one another and what God expects out of us. And then we're going to go from there and use all of that because the Lord uses the husband-wife relationship in talking about our relationship to his churches, to his church's relationship to him, and how the Lord Jesus cares about this church and about every scriptural New Testament church. And so we're talking about the praise of the shepherd for his Shulamite bride. And we're going to see in this some of the attributes that the Lord wants to notice and does notice about this church and again about every true church. But I want to go back for just a moment to what these daughters of Jerusalem have to say to this woman. Because back in the first part of the sixth chapter, they ask a question, Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whether is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? And that is such a great question to apply as we look at these things. Because the world's going to ask us about that. We talk to them about Jesus. We preach Jesus. We talk about Jesus coming back. And they're going to say, well, where'd he go? Are they going to do like 2 Peter 3 says? They'll say, well, this has been promised for a long time. And Jesus hadn't come back yet. And we can quote to them from 2 Peter chapter 3 that the Lord's not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us where the reason Jesus hasn't come back is for lost people so that they may be saved. He's not slack as some men count slack, but he's long-suffering to us where not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But when the world asks, where did he go? Where is he? We can answer with the words of Jesus from John chapter 14. Again, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Where's Jesus today? He's at the right hand of the Father. The Word of God says He's there making intercession for us today. He's got a dwelling place ready for us today and He's going to come back one of these days and He is going to receive us unto Himself. 
But again, there are people who will question his return. And just like this shepherd came back for his bride, Christ is coming back. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter said this, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I referenced that verse just a moment ago. There are a lot of people who say, Well, Jesus hadn't come back yet. And I'm not going to worry about it. But if you would just look at the Word of God, listen to the Word of God, look at what's going on in the world, and especially in the Middle East, you'll see that His coming is near. In fact, remember as Jesus ascended into heaven, those two men, there were angels, I believe, standing there on the Mount of Olives, they said, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen Him go into heaven. And then, of course, we're familiar with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 16 and 17, the Lord himself, I love that part. Jesus isn't sending somebody after us, he's coming for us. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he said in verse 18, that ought to be a comfort to you. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So when the world asks, where's Jesus today? He's with God where he ought to be right now. And he's coming back pretty soon to get us. And that's what we can answer them. And we can give them those verses of scripture. But the shepherd returns. And he speaks to his Shulamite. And again, he offers these words of praise and talks about these attributes of his bride. And of course, we're not the bride of Christ. We're engaged to in Jesus. I'll just tell you again, I don't believe that everybody that is a church member is going to be in the bride of Christ. Just because you walked an aisle, took a preacher by the hand and joined a church and got your name on a church roll and then never come to church, never serve the Lord, never witness, never study your Bible, just don't have anything to do with the Lord except on Sunday. I don't think that's going to qualify anybody for being in the bride of Christ. So I think the bride of Christ is going to be a select group out of those people who are saved, who are members of the Lord's churches, who are faithful in serving God in those churches. You say, preacher, I don't agree with you. That's okay. You have that right. But I'm going to stand on what I believe the Bible teaches. So the first thing the shepherd notices about his Shulamite bride is her beauty. He notices her beauty. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza. You say, what in the world was Terza? Well, Terza means delightfulness. Terza means pleasantness. In fact, Terza was an ancient Canaanite city that was near Shechem, and it had a beauty that was just well known. I don't know what Terza, I obviously haven't seen Terza. I haven't been to Terza. I've been to Shechem in that area, and that's a very beautiful area, but it apparently was a very beautiful place, and in fact, it became a capital for four of the kings of the northern kingdom. So apparently, they saw some value, and they saw some beauty in this place called Terza. In fact, there was a young lady named Terza, and she was the youngest of the five daughters of Zelophehad, and apparently, she was very beautiful because she was named after this place called Terza. And we can't imagine the beauty of that place, but apparently it was such that when the shepherd looked at his bride, in fact, you look at what he says here, 
He says not only was she comely, but he talks about in verse 5 that her eyes were so stunning. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. He just looks into her eyes, and he's overcome. He's taken up by her beauty. Now, man, I expect you to agree with me. When you met your bride, you were overcome by her beauty, weren't you? Do this. This will keep you from getting in trouble. You were just overcome by her beauty. And that's what he's saying. In verse 4, he says she is stunning. Look, he says she is so stunning it unnerved him. He says she is so beautiful and it unnerved him so. He says it's as if he faced an army with banners or with flags. Did any of you guys get that way when you met her? Just overcome by this beautiful woman. In fact, what he says was that she is as comely as Jerusalem. Now, what, we know what Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is the place that God has chosen to put his name. Jerusalem is a great city in this world. I know some of the world may not think so, but Jerusalem is a great city in this world. And I think we, if you'll remember, we saw as we studied Psalms that as one approached Jerusalem, they were just overcome with this city. Not just the beauty of the city, but the awesomeness and the foreboding look of the city as they approached it. Now, the world doesn't always think Jerusalem is a great place. They're fighting over Jerusalem sometimes over there in the Middle East. But listen to what the enemies of Jerusalem said in the book of Ezra. They called it a rebellious and bad city. They said they'll not pay toll, tribute, and custom. They said it's a city that's hurtful unto kings and provinces, and they've moved with sedition in the old time. He said, if this city be builded again, and the walls thereof set up, by this means thou shalt have no portion on this side of the river. And so the enemies of Jerusalem don't like Jerusalem, but here this shepherd sees his bride, and he compares her to this beautiful city of Jerusalem. Folks, the world is privileged to have Jerusalem in it, even though its enemies may not think so. And then in the end of verse 5 all the way through verse 7 he repeats the praise of chapter 4. You know he says her hair is like a flock of goats. Again men don't tell your wife her hair looks like goat hair. That won't get you any points. But to him it made an impression that she had this beautiful hair. Her teeth like flocks of sheep and all of these things that he says about her. And then he compared her temples to just a piece of pomegranate. So he sees this great beauty. You know what the instruction from the word of God to us men is over in the book of Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, we're told to rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Just rejoice with the wife of thy youth. In verse 19, it says, be thou ravished always with her love. That word ravished has the idea of being enraptured. And I just put a little note out beside that to myself and I put consumed, question mark. Just be consumed with her beauty. Just be consumed with her, her love. Always, the scripture says. In fact, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30 tells us that there's a great beauty to a wife who is faithful to her husband and to her family and to the Lord. You read that 31st chapter of the book of Proverbs beginning in verse 10 that talks about a godly woman and it ends saying this favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. God places a great value. In his word he talks about it. A great value on a woman who is faithful and who will serve her husband and serve her family. And again he says that's, that's more important than looks. You know what happens with beauty? We get old. 
Okay? We start to age and sometimes beauty fades. And all of these things that young men and young women are looking for today in one another that impresses them so. And they bypass faithfulness to God and they bypass true love for a spouse and they're looking for something else and they don't realize what the Word of God says that fearing the Lord and being faithful to Him is the greatest attribute that you can find in a mate. I'm thankful. You know, Joni and I just had an anniversary and I'm thankful that the Lord brought us together however many years ago. Well, I haven't forgotten really. I just didn't want to bring it up. In fact, I gave her a card. It said something about, uh, I know that God put us together. I know that God put you in my life. And then she reminded me of what I said to try to win her over. She said, when I thought about her, the clouds parted in the sun. Well, I don't know about that, but anyway. That's what I told her, and she believed it, and I got her, didn't I? <laughs> and we've been together for a while. But again, just a faithful woman who loves God and loves her family. Ephesians 5.25 now says to us, husbands, husbands, love your wife, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's a sacrificial love. That is a love that says, you're going to come first in my life. Well, there's the beauty of the bride. There's the beauty of the spouse. Well, here's the beauty of the church. The Lord sees the beauty of his churches. And you know why? Because he sees himself in his true churches. Jesus Christ knows and Jesus understands the price that was paid for this church to exist. And I'm not talking dollars and cents, but I'm talking about the blood of Jesus. And he knows what we have endured as a church to remain true to him. Again, we don't have the masses of people that beat down the door to get in here. We could change, we're not. We could change the preaching. We could change to an entertainment format in the worship and we could attract the world, but that's not what we're supposed to do. And Jesus knows what we endure to stay true to him. And as a church, we should reflect the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 reminds us that we're to let our light so shine among men that they may see that light and they may see our good works and they may glorify our Father which is in heaven. Philippians chapter 2 verse 15, the Apostle Paul reminded that church that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You know what we're supposed to be doing as a church? We're supposed to be shining just like a light on a dark night. You know, when we go to bed at night, we turn off all the lights. But there's one little light. If anybody gets up, in fact, if I just turn over in bed, it comes on. And it's not a big light. It's just one little, I guess, LED bulb. But you know what? It lights up the whole room. And that's what we're supposed to be to this world. We say, well, we're just one little church. We're just one little light. But oh, if we will stand for the Lord, folks, we can light up a great area all about us. We're to show, John 13, 34 and 35, we're to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ toward one another and toward people who don't know Christ as Savior. As a New Testament church, there must be a certain attractiveness about us. Not what attracts the world. That's not what I'm talking about. But there must be a certain attractiveness about us, and it is the attractiveness of Christ. You know, many churches are changing today. Many churches, in fact, I got a text message from someone just the other day who asked me about this particular preacher, and I don't know who he is. I 
couldn't even tell you the name right now, but asked about this particular preacher. I said, not one of those entertainment type preachers, is he? And I said, well, I don't know anything about him. But so much of so-called worship today is little more than entertainment to try to attract the world. John chapter 12, verse 32. You know what Jesus said there? He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, shall draw all men to me. You know how to draw men to this church and draw men to Jesus? Just lift up Jesus. As we meet to worship, lift up Jesus. Sing Jesus. Preach Jesus. Just raise him up. And he says he'll draw the world to him. The world is privileged to have New Testament churches just like this one. And though the world may not think so, folks, I think the world would like to see us out of here. We're sort of a thorn in their side. But though the world may not think so, true churches, first of all, are the salt of the earth. Jesus said so. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, its savor, what? It's not good for anything. We must never lose our saltiness. We must never lose our savor as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the light of the world. You're the light of the world, he said in Matthew 5. But what good is it if you turn on a light and you put a cover over it? One of the strangest, and I know what it is, but one of the strangest terms I think I've ever heard in my life is a black light. Now I know what a black light is and I know what a black light does. But just those two terms, it's sort of like jumbo shrimp, you know. Black light, jumbo, all of those phrases. But what good is a light? Somebody at one time at church camp said that somebody had come into his cabin it was one of the preachers who got to have his own room, you know, come into his room and had taken his light bulb out and had painted it black and put it back in. And so when he walked into the room and turned on the light switch, he had no light. Well, what good is that light, see? We're the light of the world. We're to be a light to the world about us. And then when churches are removed and when the Holy Spirit is restrained, as one man said, folks, hell's going to have a holiday on earth. We think things are bad now. You know, we read in the news, there's a shooting here, a shooting there, there's this crime, that crime, there's high-collar crime, there's blue-collar crime, I mean white-collar crime, blue-collar crime. There's all these different kinds of crimes. I tell you what, it's calm right now. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 says, And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. That's the Holy Spirit. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit's restraining things right now. One of these days he's going to draw back that control. He's going to draw back that restraints. And then, he says, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know what's going to happen? When the Holy Spirit is pulled back and restrained, when this church and all true churches are out of here and hell's having a holiday on earth, that spells the doom of all of those who rejected Christ. Somebody said, well, I'll wait around and see if all that's going to happen. It's too late. Once the resurrection and the rapture of the saved comes, folks, it's too late. If you've heard the gospel, here's what that 
verses teaching us, those verses are teaching us, if you hear the gospel today and you reject Jesus Christ today and Jesus comes back tomorrow, you're not going to have an opportunity to be saved. Why? Because you wouldn't believe the truth when it was preached to you. In fact, what it says is God will send people a strong delusion so that they'll believe the lie of the Antichrist. Say, how in the world would anybody ever believe the Antichrist? Because God will allow them to. He sees her beauty. And the Lord sees the beauty of this church and every other scriptural New Testament church. But then he praises her boldness. And I think that talks about the church's authority and that talks about the church's ability. You know that we have heavenly authority, don't you? Well, just do that because we do. We have heavenly authority. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 that we're to go and teach all nations or make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. That gives this church and every true church its authority to go out and to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And that is our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, I think it's wonderful that we can come in here into our little safe zone and meet and love one another and enjoy one another's fellowship and listen to mm, some preaching. I started to say good preaching. Listen to some preaching anyway and do all of that. And we ought to. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, the scripture teaches. But by the same token, that's not the only thing we're supposed to be doing. This is to be a disciple-making organization, a disciple-making body, a disciple-making institution, whatever term you want to use, but our purpose for existing is to bring glory to God, and one of the ways that we bring glory to God is we make disciples for Jesus Christ. Lead them to Christ. You can't make a disciple out of a lost person. Lead them to Christ. Once they're saved, encourage upon them. We can't force anybody to be baptized, but encourage upon them scriptural baptism. What is that? See, the first of all, we make converts and then we mark them. That's what baptism is. It's a mark. It's an identification with Christ. And then we mature them, teaching them to observe all things. There's our authority. And I don't know of any other, well, there is no other institution upon the face of the earth that has that authority. It's straight out of heaven. But God also gives us the ability. Acts 1.8, the disciples were there with Jesus and he said, ye shall receive power. That word is the word from which we get our word dynamite. Dynamic ability. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. So he gives us the authority and then he, we don't have to depend on our own ability to do it. He gives us the ability. Isn't that amazing? God gives us a job to do and he says, I'm going to give you the ability to do it. God will not give us a job to do that he will not give us the ability to do. He's going to give us the ability. Now I want you to look at what this shepherd says to his bride, to the Shulamite woman. He tells her she's terrible. She's terrible as an army with banners. You look over to verse 10. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. That means frightful. She's frightening to him. She is so beautiful that she's frightening. And her boldness is in stark contrast to her beauty. What do you mean her boldness? You remember what she did? She went out in the city at night. And that wasn't like going out in this city at night. 
Oh, that wasn't like going out in some small town. It was dangerous for her, and she loved her shepherd so much she's going to go look for him, and she just goes out by herself in the city at night. There's a boldness to her. Listen, there needs to be a boldness to us as God's people. Not an arrogance. We never want to be arrogant, but we need to be bold. First of all, because we understand our authority. I said it's disciple-making, disciple-marking, disciple-maturing authority. We understand our ability. It's the ability to speak. Just look for a moment to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20. And listen to what Jesus said right there. He's sending out the 70. He's sending them out to witness. And he says this, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. Oh, preacher, I don't know how to witness. I don't know what to say to somebody. Don't worry about it. Just spend some time in the Word of God. Know why you were saved, why you needed to be saved, and how you were saved. And I'll tell you what, you'll be able to tell somebody how to be saved. But he goes on to say, For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. It better never be Jim Harris that preaches. It better be the Spirit of God that uses this body to declare the Word of God. I tell you what, you learn that early on as a pastor sometimes, you know, it as a preacher. It's not my ability. I mean, my goodness. I started in junior high with speech courses and then got into high school with drama and got into college with speech and drama and all that. But it's not that ability, folks. I mean, if somebody were just to, somebody who knew how to, what proper speaking was, were to observe this message, they'd say, well, here's all of the mistakes you made. And it would have about 10 or 12 pages at least. Well, it's not my ability. And when we go to witness, it's not our ability. It's God's ability speaking through us. So he praises her beauty. Then he praises her boldness. And we, as one of the Lord's churches, need to be bold in this world. I saw something last night. I actually had to borrow the picture from something else. I thought it was about standing for the Lord, and then I found out it was something about teachers, and so I just copied the picture and posted it on my Facebook. It says, meowing time is over, folks. It's time to roar. It's got a picture of a lion roaring. I tell you what, it's time for God's people and the Lord's churches to quit meowing, and it's time for us to roar. It's time for us to speak up. It's time for us to tell people about Jesus. We need to be bold. And then after he praises her beauty and her boldness, he praises her uniqueness. I like these verses in 8 and 9. There are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled is but one. Surrounded by all of these. And he picks out one, okay? And then he says this. She's the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. You know what that's saying? She's the only one of her, she is unique. She is different maybe, but she is unique. And she is as dear as if she had been an only child. That's how dear she is to her mother. That's how dear she is to him. In fact, he said this. You know, a lot of times you... Young man will meet a young girl and say, any more at home like you, you know? Well, here's what he's saying. If there were any more at home like her, she'd still be the choice one of her mother. That's how unique she is to him. 
And I believe that's the way our wives, men, ought to be to us. But he says the queens and the concubines praised her. You look to verses 12 and 13, and it just tells us that she wandered into the area of the princes of her people. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Amenadib. Return, return, O Shelomite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will you see in the Shelomite? As it were, the company of two armies. You know what he's saying? She wandered into this area. Remember, she's beautiful. And she's bold, and she wandered in this area, and she apparently realized where she was, and she began to flee. And you know what they say? The queens and the concubines and all of these that are named, you know what they say? Come on back. We want to look on your beauty. Don't go away. Come back. We want to look upon you. In reality, the kind of faithfulness between a loving husband and a loving wife speaks of something that is unique in this world, folks, especially today. Joni was telling someone not long ago how long we'd been married. It reminded her of a story several years ago somebody asked, and I don't remember how many years it was, it was 40-something, asked how long we'd been married, and she told them 40, whatever it was at that time, and they said, to the same person? I told you, 48 years ago, she was stuck with me. We're glued together. But that's unique in this world. That's different in this world. I told a young girl the other night. She said, congratulations. I thought, yeah, congratulate her because she put up with me for all of these years, right? But it's just something that is unique in this world today. True, Bible-believing, God-fearing, faithful churches are unique in this world today, folks. You know, you've heard me say several times that we're a minority in this world, and we are. God's people are a minority in this world. But there are some of God's people who are not in true Bible-believing, God-fearing churches. And so that brings that number down even smaller. And we are in the minority, and we are unique in this world. We are unique as to our cost. You know, we read just last week at the end of chapter 5, was it? We read the description that this Shulamite woman gave of her shepherd that she loved so much. We're unique as to our, what did it cost for this church to exist? I've already mentioned it, but it was the blood of the son, only begotten Son of God. That's what it cost for this church to be in existence today. When he was giving the Lord's Supper, remember, he gave them the fruit of the vine. He said, this is my blood which is shed for you. He gave them the unleavened bread. He said, this is my body which is shed for you. He was, had his church there assembled with him, and he's instituting the supper. And he said, this is for you. He died on the cross, yes, to save the souls of men, but he died for this church also. There's no other institution upon the face of this earth that can claim that purchase price. God's created two institutions on this earth, the family and the church, the home and the church, okay? But Jesus did not die for the family. He died for individual members of the family. Jesus died for his churches. We're unique as to our commission. There's no other institution on this earth, I said, that has authority from heaven to go out and make disciples. You know, there are preachers who establish their own, they call them evangelical associations. They, I guess they have their own little business and, or whatever they want to call it, and it's an evangelical association. And so they say, we've got the authority to go out. No, they don't. The authority to make disciples is given to the Lord's churches. 
That commission was given to Christ churches and no other institution. I don't care if it's evangelical. There's some good institutions on this earth, I think. Man-made institutions. I'm sure they do a lot of good. You know, there's Lions Clubs and Rotary and different things. And I'm sure they do a good job as far as the job they do. I'm not bad-mouthing any of them. But they don't have authority from heaven to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Only a true New Testament church does. And we're unique as to what I am calling here our cause, our purpose, our reason for existence. And can you guess what verse of scripture I'm going to quote right now? Ephesians 3.21 Unto him, and the him is God, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end. Isn't it interesting that God didn't say unto him be glory in the home? The home ought to glorify God. Unto him be glory in the marriage. The marriage ought to glorify God. Unto him be glory in your life. Your life ought to glorify God. But when it comes to an institution. Unto him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end. I don't know of any other institution. In fact there is no other institution. Upon this earth where God says. I will be glorified through you. But here's what God said to Bethel Baptist Church. I will be glorified through you. It is your job, church. It is your responsibility, Bethel, to bring me glory. Not to bring the preacher glory, not to bring the song director's glory, not to bring the musician's glory, not to bring any individual glory, but to bring God glory. And every meeting that we have, every worship service, every business meeting, every fellowship, all of it, folks, young people have meetings that ought to be for the purpose of glorifying God not entertaining the world. And then, a closing thought, each true New Testament church is as dear to the Lord as if she were the only one in existence. We're not battling some other church to try to get the Lord's approval or battling with some other church to try to get God to say, oh, I'm so proud of you. We're one-on-one -on -one with the Lord and we will either please Him or we will not please Him. And we need to bring glory to him. Well, I would go on. I could go on, but I won't. New Testament churches are special to the Lord. And they're special in this world. You know, I believe there are people who don't think the church is special today. Some of them, because of this, they've grown up in church. You know, sometimes things that we're familiar with. What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we've grown up in church and we've been around church and church people and all of that. And especially if you've lived in, we're not only in the Bible Belt, we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, okay? And you've grown up in all of that and you say, well, you know, church, is, it's always been there, it's always going to be there. It may not be. But we've grown up with that familiarity and it just, even though it should mean something, it just doesn't seem to mean as much. But there is a beauty to this church, folks. There's a beauty that the Lord sees. And there's a beauty that we should show in these services, on this live stream, out in the world, a beauty, and it is the beauty of the Lord Jesus. There's a boldness. I talked about that a moment ago. The boldness of God-given authority. Listen, if the Lord's churches don't spread the gospel and stand for the truth, who will? 
If we don't spread the gospel instead, and we ought to have the attitude, hey, we may be the only one, so we, it's our job. You know, it's easy to lay it off on somebody. Well, such and such is a bigger church, and they have a bigger program, and more people go there, more people there, and more visitors are likely to go there, more lost people are likely. So that's their job, and ours is just to sort of commune together and enjoy each other. No. The responsibility on this church is as great as any other church in this town. True church in this town. I said I could go on. I need to wrap up. There's a uniqueness to this church that no other organization is like it. I said there's some good organizations in town, but none of them are like this church and each and every true New Testament church. Now, we're closing with this. Knowing that this church is special to the Lord should cause her members to see this church as special. I hope you do. I hope you see this church as something very, very special. And here's what it'll do to us. It'll cause us to love this church as Christ does. It will cause us to have a self-sacrificing love for her. It will cause us to be faithful to the Lord through this church. I think it's good that you're faithful to the church, but that's not the end result. The end result is we're faithful to God, to the Lord, through this church. This is the institution that he's given us to work through. But the ultimate end of glory is to him. It will cause us to, here we go, I'm going to meddle, all right? It will cause us to be present when she meets. If you love this church, I like being with my family. I like having my family together. I mean, not just our daughter and her husband, but our son and his wife and their family. I love that time. We could just all get together. and be. Why? Because I love them. And they're special. And this is our family too. And we ought to love being together. It will cause us to support her financially and by our prayers. There you go talking about money, preacher. No, I, financially yes, but by our prayers. You know what the greatest need of Bethel is? Praying people. Praying people. Circle that prayer. Amen. If you go in the fellowship hall, there's a board with prayer requests on it. And there's one area that's circled in red. Pray for visitors. Pray that God will add to this church. Pray that God will keep Satan at bay and from causing problems in this church. Pray for the church. And then it will cause us to sacrifice if necessary to see that this church remains true to God and remains true to His Word. God has blessed us greatly you say, oh, yes, he has. We've got this building. and we have. That's not what I'm talking about. God has blessed us by giving us New Testament churches where we can assemble together, encourage one another, worship God, serve him, live for him through this church. I hope you view it that way. I hope that's your attitude. I pray. You say, well, that's just what preachers are interested in. It's what every church member ought to be interested in. I pray that if there's somebody not here today that needs to be here, that should be here in these services today, you'll encourage them to go to Facebook, to our Facebook. It's our page, not our group, but you'll encourage them to go there and pull this live stream up and watch this message. Not because Brother Jim wants to be seen, but because I believe this is a message we need as a church. The Lord loves us, but he expects a great deal from us, and we ought to be willing to serve him and do the things he wants us to do.